Hello everybody, welcome to the first episode of The Node. Today we have an interview with my friend Cole Geshwind. Cole is a Master of Accountancy student. He's currently working on his CPA, Certified Public Accountant. He's a runner, a backcountry snowboarder, mountain biker, climber, any outdoor activity, you name it, he probably does it. I know Cole as someone who's constantly encouraging others to engage in outdoor recreation. Um, he knows a lot about it, and I see him sharing that information with everybody who has an interest in it. In this podcast, we talk about finances. We talk about employer and employee relationships. We talk about how you should spend your money and invest morally. Cole gives us a couple investing tips. We also talk about running and the training mindset you have during running. Uh, during this, we mentioned David Goggins. So if you don't know who David Goggins is, you should go check out his Instagram. That's David, G-O-G-G-I-N-S. Goggins is in Goggins is a retired Navy SEAL, an ultra runner, and just a character. If you're if you're trying to get motivated, you should go watch some David Goggins. We also mentioned Jeff Mogavero. Jeff is an ultra runner based in Missoula. He recently placed third at the Run Rabbit Run 100 miler. You should definitely check out his Instagram and his blog. Mogavero is M-O-G-A-V-E-R-O. Jeff, if this reaches you, I'd love to have you on the podcast. All right, before we get started, you can support the show through my tip jar, which you can find at the bottom of the show notes. You can donate any amount, I think up to $50. Anything you donate will be super helpful. Right now, I'm trying to save up for some dynamic mics, so this will make sound quality a little better for interviewing. You can also support the show by sharing it with your friends, anyone you think would be interested in these talks. Just share the love. We'll get it out there. You can find Cole at Cole underscore Geshwind on Instagram. Check out some of his stuff on there. You can also find him at Alpine Bandwagon on YouTube. All right, I think that does it for an intro. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, let's get started. What have you, so what have you been up to lately? You've been in quarantine and you've been studying for a CPA exam? Yeah, yeah, that's the big thing, actually, which makes it kind of nice. You know, I feel like otherwise it'd be like, what am I supposed to do with myself right now? Right. There would just be too much time on my hands, but instead there's not enough time on my hands because the CPA exam is supposed to take like 100% of your waking hours, basically, for like months. Damn. When are you taking that? Um, so it's four parts. Mm -hmm. I have to take the first part May 15th. I just signed up the other day. Okay. And then, yeah, the, the remaining three parts I'll just take through the summer. So I'm pretty much stuck in this routine for the rest of the summer. So this is exactly what you were expecting anyway? No, this is a lot worse than I was expecting. I thought it would be, like, casual studying for just, like, a normal school exam. You know, maybe you put in, like, an hour or two of just quality studying. Right. <laughs> but that was so wrong. So is it a lot of formulas or what kind of yeah yeah it, it's kind of like the bar exam there's a bunch of law um uh, uh, it's yeah 
like memorizing concepts and like laws and stuff. Okay. Do you have to pass this to move into your job that you got at the tax firm? Yeah, I think that's implied. It probably would not go over well if I didn't pass this. I don't know if I would lose my job. Like they might still let me start there and then yeah. we'd be on the condition that I retake these things until I pass them. Okay. That that never goes well. Like people who try to take these things while they're working just can't that you don't have enough time. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, I'm not stoked about it, but at least at least I have like this singular task to focus on. Mhm. Mm have you been so you've been able to get out also? You've been mountain biking? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of my break between everything. Okay, and running. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was how I think you're one of the people that I see compartmentalizing uh work and play and one of it's almost a classic way to do it, but I think that the way that you do it is very interesting, and you seem to have a disciplined approach at it. And, uh, yeah, could you tell us a little about your work and play split yeah. and how, yeah. you can af how you afford that? Maybe it's like not Not financially, but, like, with time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess... Are you talking about how my my idea of like your work doesn't need to be your passion sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean that kind of sums it up right there, but you see a lot of people, especially in our generation, saying, you know, like follow your passion. But mm -hmm. that of course doesn't that rarely works. Like you can do that and you'd probably get a good life out of it, but I don't know, you're you're likely to financially struggle forever with that methodology. So I think the easier kind of safer bet is just pick something that maybe you're not passionate about, but you can tolerate and you can do it and that it pays the bills, you know, find something lucrative that fits those criteria and then just right. make your money and have enough free time to do whatever you want you know, follow your passions outside of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how do you, I guess one thing that catches me up with that is like economy of time. And I know there's a lot of time spent throughout the day doing things that you wouldn't necessarily be choosing to do as your main activity, like brushing your teeth, sleeping, whatever. But when it comes to working a full-time job, it seems like you've, You've chosen to do something that you find interesting. It's not necessarily your passion, which we can talk about what your passion is a little later. But yeah, how do you justify spending up to 40 hours a week, maybe even 50, 60, 70, doing something that's not your passion? And I guess I see what people practice as kind of becoming part of their life, and it kind of changes who you are physically and mentally. And so how do you how do you justify spending that much time in something that maybe isn't the thing that you would like to be the best at? Or maybe it is, but I'll leave that open. Maybe it's not justifiable, you know? I haven't really tried it yet. Mm -hmm. I'm in my last semester of grad school here, and I'm about to start my first real job in August. Right. So, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe my... Well, I guess it is true that my idea right now, the way kind of my strategy for all this is just completely blind. 
I don't really have anything to base it off of. It just sounds like it'll work. Right. Yeah, I mean, once I start, once I start doing, you know, maybe those 70-hour weeks, it'll just be absolutely horrific. And I'll realize I spent way too much time becoming a CPA, and now I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Or maybe I'll start it, and I'll realize, like, oh, I am passionate about this, so I enjoy all of these hours. Right. Well, and it's not like you're basing it on nothing. You're, I mean, how many years do you have in college studying this? I mean, it seems like you're interested and good at learning it. And so it's, it seems to me that making a decision to work in the field, it, it's, not, it's not as if you're doing something that you hate with your time. It seems like you've thought it through very thoroughly and you're saying, this is something I can make money at. This is something that isn't, it's, it's interesting enough that I can spend time doing it. And I, you, how many years have you spent studying it? Five or six? And so it's not something, at least it seems it's not something that you're really turned off from doing. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So I guess it's more of an educated guess. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, I think it's going to be somewhere, when I start work, the actual feeling will probably be a middle ground. You know, I doubt I will just absolutely hate it, but I also doubt that it'll just be like thrilling every day, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure... Yeah. You CPAs probably look forward to going to work every day, mm -hmm. but if it's like, ah, oh, I don't mind it, it's it's kind of interesting, It's it'll be a bearable way to spend those hours, and especially knowing that you're bringing in a good paycheck for it. Right. In a way, it seems like you're doing something by choice that other people can tend to get forced into. Like you were saying earlier, not everybody can live their passion through their job, get paid for doing the thing that they would really like to do. And so rather than end up trying something out and let's see, rather than end up sort of being forced into a job that you don't want or that's not going to pay the bills. I mean, I see a lot of, I think a lot of people end up working like manager jobs at uh, grocery stores. Not that that's, a job that's you shouldn't be proud to have or isn't good or fun i'm sure there's lots of appealing things but rather than kind of seeing what you end up in you've taken the initiative to get into this field i think that's that seems like a good strategy to me so how do you balance the time that you spend doing other things like running um, outdoor recreation things that i mean video editing things that you seem to be passionate in a direction that's not necessarily driven by monetary gain. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just have to force those things in there. It has to be a pretty deliberate effort because, I don't know, a lot of times, even with just a 40-hour-per-week job, you get home and you're just exhausted. Right. I do anything. So you really just have to make a routine out of forcing yourself to do these things. Mm -hmm. And it, it always pays off. You know, if you get home, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm too tired to go mountain biking right now but if you're just like nope i'm just gonna i have to do it it's just a part of my day and then it makes it sound like a chore like why would you do it if you feel that way but as soon as you're like two minutes into it you realize like okay this was this was a good decision i needed to do this right yeah that's the same with training like even if it sucks at the beginning as soon as you're done you're so glad that you did it as far as like going on a runs this brings me to something else that 
I find really, I guess you're talking about this has got me thinking about it. And what I, what I'm talking about is you seem to be a big advocate for securing your time and having boundaries with an employer. And yeah, that's something that has inspired me to think about that. And since we've talked about that, I think we talked, had a good conversation about this while we were hiking Lolo. I've been thinking about that and seeing all of these situations where people are being employed at part-time jobs so that they don't have to get paid benefits, they don't have to get paid a decent wage. And then there's the element of the employer uh, employer and other staff kind of inserting this emotional attachment to the job. Would you talk a little bit about that and kind of your standards for your employer and what kind of time and space you need for yourself? Yeah, so I think there's definitely a difference there between a job and a career as far as what you take to that. You know, like a job, we'll just look at that as some like part-time college job, which Mm -hmm. is not going to be very impactful in the long run. And so in that case, I think it's pretty important to not be emotionally attached to that at all. And to, yeah, be really careful with the time demands that it puts on you. So if all of a sudden your job is kind of trying to prioritize itself over your school, then you should just make the objective decision, like, this isn't, that's not okay. I'm not going to allow that. But career, you know, you really have to look at how that's going to affect, like, impact your reputation Mm because reputation is going to turn into earnings. Right. All kind of like a financial decision, I guess, at that point. So if you're an employer, I mean, I don't know, I'm planning on when I start this job and my boss all of a sudden wants 70 hours, 70 hours per week out of me, like I'll probably do that because it'll be worth it in the long run, even though it might suck immediately. But yeah, especially with the short term jobs in college, there's really nothing. There's no reason to get stressed out about those things. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. Like You can just go get another one in a week if you want and it won't right. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah, you do see a lot of people getting getting too stressed out about this stuff. And yeah, I wonder if what you do for your hobbies and it's you have an interesting take on stress. And I think a lot of people that um, are kind of masochistic in their hobbies doing training like running and I guess more extreme sports tend to be able to deal with stress a little better than a lot of other people. And I want, yeah, I wonder if that's a factor. Yeah, I bet that is. I mean, I think it's definitely just a a new perspective, right? Mm -hmm. It puts things like little part-time jobs in kind of a lower priority in your life, you know? Right. You're on like a super long run. You're up on some ridge line, just getting blasted by a wind. You're like, dang, this is, I could just die. Like, Mm -hmm. the odds of death are just unreasonably high compared to going about your regular life. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I've I've had that thought a few times on, like, ridge lines, places where if you trip, like, if you're not dying, you're getting really hurt. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's no big deal, especially when you do it all the time. It's just like, where do I put my foot next? I know, yes, that kind of becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. So it it would take something like above that to be really stressful in your life. So then when you're working like your grocery store job, 
and it's like, oh my god, I've got a line of customers to deal with. <laughs> like, right. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, some of them. them. But like, don't worry about it. Just do what you can, and that'll be good enough. Yeah. Hopefully, no one sneezes on you. Oh, true. It's definitely different now. Yeah, it's it's a hard one to conceptualize the whole COVID thing. I know one person that I went to high school with who has it now, and oh. even that person is so far removed from me that it's hard. For, like, I get paranoid about it, but mostly because of the news I'm reading and looking at, like, the death toll rise every day. But, yeah, that, that's more abstract. Being out there on a ridge line or, like, snowboarding down a slope that's you've never been down that's crazy steep, that brings out a little bit of a different risk management brain you kind of get that like ominous dread like what if this whole slope just slides right now and i'm gonna die the worst deaths you could possibly die yeah buried suffocating your friends out there looking for you i i always thought that dying in an avalanche would be like relatively painless as long as the trauma doesn't kill you but it's usually trauma that kills you getting smashed around yes so that that sounds pretty bad but then i thought like well if that doesn't happen and you just get buried like it's just like dying in a like a bunch of carbon monoxide you know you just kind of like black out but it it turns yeah yeah, suffocation it's like the same thing as drowning because you're breathing in your own co2 okay so it's not painless it's really bad (laughs) i don't know i think i think dying like that could be okay if you're if you're like prepared to die, if you have some sort of practice like meditation where you can be like, okay, I'm dying, gotta let go of all of my attachments to this world. Well, yeah, but reflect the, actual, on. <laughs> the actual feeling is like holding your breath, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but there's like Buddhist monks who burn themselves to death in protest and just sat there. Oh, that's true. I guess that's like a whole next level of transcendence. <laughs> yeah, I think that would take a lot of work <laughs> to enjoy dying in an avalanche. Be able to burn yourself alive and just stay cool. <laughs> yeah, that that's a skill. I don't know. I think that's something that employers like to uh, breed into people, too. You know, yeah. Like working for the Forest Service or the military, like any kind of high-stress physical job. It's, like, very valued to be able to ignore pain. And then there's that kind of machismo attitude. But I don't know. You are you run really hard a lot of the time. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with a sub-7? a sub seven? Wait, it, are you at sub-6 half marathon? Um, Yeah, I think, what was my record? I think my record was, like, 549 pace. Okay, okay. But that was that was the Missoula half, I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, do you think well, <laughs> if you put them next to each other, that might be similarly painful to uh, dying in an avalanche? Except for there's not the element of control in the run; you can always stop. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. Like, new shocks. Like one thing, one thing I just can't handle is cold water. Like I'm so bad at being cold in general. Yeah. Whereas you know you compare that to like a hard run, the end of a half marathon, and yeah, it's probably nothing. Right. Yeah, I think I'm just used to the whole running thing. You just kind of accept it. It's like, oh, this is really good for me. 
Yeah, this this is fine. You get yep. I th- I think that's the difference between people starting out with running or any sort of exercise where you're. I mean, exercise is generally painful unless you're doing yoga. Even then, it's pretty painful. Yeah. Um. Yeah, just getting used to it. That's definitely an attitude. Yeah, I mean, I guess okay with pain. Used to cold water, for example, that whole Wim Hof deal. Right. Like yeah. No. First. I I have a friend who um, worked in a program, I think inspired by him. But one of the things they would do is demonstrate hype. They would teach how to fix hypothermia. And she gave herself hypothermia by sitting in cold water just for the students to be able to like fix her. That's her out of the shock. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. That's a little. Well, that's a little much. Yeah, I wonder how bad for you that is. I don't know if that kind of stress is bad for your body or good for your body. I guess hypothermia is probably objectively bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can that do like long-term damage? Maybe. I don't know. Does it affect your respiratory system at all? I guess at one point you start losing blood flow to your brain because your body's trying to preserve your organs. Yeah. Maybe it's okay. like deprivation and that if you're not getting all the nutrients to your brain you need you come away from it with a little bit of brain damage yeah that's not right yeah i wouldn't try that after (laughs) hearing that (laughs) okay so have you ever had the conversation with an employer um about i mean i guess you've been focused on college mostly but have you ever had to set those boundaries with an employer like hey like how do you explain that you're used to running for an hour or two every day. Yeah, I, you know, I've never had to straight up step in and be mm-hmm. like, this is too much, at least for running. You know, it, it probably would not fly to say, mm-hmm. I, I need to run every day. Like, that's just kind of on you to make that work. I mean, maybe it would fly depending on how well you know your boss, but it would certainly be a bad first impression. Yeah. With one of my professors, so I'm a, a graduate assistant, so I have to like grade a bunch of tests for these people. I had just right. an absolute mountain of papers to grade coming into finals week. And he was really cool about it. He told me, like, if there's ever too much, let me know, because your first priority is to be a student. So okay. it really helps if they're aware of that. And then don't be afraid to go to them if they tell you that they're aware of that. So I did tell him, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I can get through all these papers this week and mm-hmm. for my tests. And he was cool with it, so... Sometimes it's yeah. just that. Yeah, communication and then prioritizing what you need to prioritize. That's that's something, one of the jobs that I work, I'm often asked to take shifts. And it's, it's kind of hard for me to justify saying, like, no, I'm not going to take this shift. I have things to do. And a lot of the time, the things that I need to do are self-care things, like going on a run or meditation or things that help me with my daily sanity and explaining that to an employer. That's a conversation that I think you should have with an employer or whoever you're working with, maybe like in relationships. That's a, that's a big thing too, the time that you spend. So I think have you that with youth homes. Um, so I'm lucky in that my manager at youth homes is also really into outdoor recreation. So it's never, 
I've talked with him a lot about outdoor recreation and then about what I do for fun in my free time, things like that. And he's been pretty good about, well, he's been really good about letting me schedule my own time. There's an occasional time where they're kind of stressed, where the pressure gets put on part-time employees like myself to take the extra shifts. A lot of the time that's in like pinch instances where you're kind of having to cancel whatever you had planned for the next day. Yeah. So I haven't had to have that conversation super actively there at the job that I worked last summer where I was in the wilderness with the kids for a couple of weeks. That was one yeah. where the conversation about like staff time to themselves was, it was had, I don't think that one's weird because it's a, it's not really an environment you can take that much time if things aren't going really smoothly. So that was an instance at least. Um, let's see. What were we talking about? We were talking about... Oh. oh, having the conversation with employers about boundaries and being able to do your own thing. Yeah, so that was a that was a thing with working with inner roads, um, not getting that time. And it took a while for me to realize that that's something that I actually really need to protect in my schedule. Otherwise, my life, like, just quality of life goes down significantly if you're not oh, able yeah. to take that time. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, it, is, it is so important. And I think that that conversation should be normalized. Like, it shouldn't be a weird thing to ask your employer for maybe even time in the middle of the day. Like, split your shift so you can go for a run or just taking time to uh, protect yourself or yeah, safeguard yourself from fatigue. I think, or... I mean, at least the concept of like a lunch run is kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. I did that yeah. at one of my internships when I was at the legislative audit division mm -hmm. and like nobody there was a runner. So it's not like they could relate to that. But when I asked if I could just split up my day and run over lunch, like nobody batted than I. That's awesome. So that that was pretty nice, but it's a small sample size, so who knows how that would go over at all yeah. these other places. Yeah, I've gotten really lucky and had some some good employers that are understanding. Uh, the lab job that I'm working right now is super chill because I set my own hours, basically. Yeah, that's so but, nice. But not everybody's that lucky. I don't know, working at restaurants, working at gas stations, grocery stores, food industry in general, I feel like that would be a lot harder. Yeah, I guess if you're you're on an hourly shift sort of deal like that, mm -hmm. that that just couldn't work. You'd have to schedule it on the back, the front end or the back end of a shift. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about um, your training. I this is something that we haven't talked about a whole lot, which I kind of find odd. Uh, but just training style in general. How do you approach running? How seriously do you take it? And then, how? yeah, you're, you're a very competitive runner. So do you take, I mean, do you train for running goals? What, what do you um, do when you're... It depends. I mean, if I sign up for a race, then that race is definitely the goal. Yeah. But, like, right now, everything's up in the air, so who knows? Yeah. So I'm just kind of trying to throw in, like, one or two interval workouts every week and just doing kind of like general training so then when races 
are a thing again. I can specify from there, you know, I'll hopefully have a good base to work from. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's just the thing, too, is you're you're one of the few people I know that will actually run interval workouts in a casual run week. Like, that's, yeah, I guess I that, know, that's not that kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, like, if I'm doing intervals on, like, the, the river trail where there's a bunch of people, and right. you're just this guy, like, sprinting down the path, it, is, it gets some looks. It's kind of weird. Yeah, that's like the only time I've been catcalled and not in like a positive direction is when I'm sprinting. Like, hey, you're going fast. Oh, yeah. I get that too. I get that so much. Like, so many people yell things at you because it's just so abnormal, apparently. Yeah. I had a couple girls the other day, like, literally yell at me. They're like, you're not going fast enough. <laughs> like, I don't even yeah. know what to say to you. Can't say anything. <laughs> just keep going. But- at least if you go to like a track, it's it's pretty normal at a track, you know, nobody nobody right. notices that. Yeah. Tracks are painful for me to run on. They're yeah. Not not physically, just they're monot they're monotonous and I have this association with sprinting with them. And so Oh yeah. They're hard. They're, they're, hard they're so good for the data on. though. Like every oh, yeah. every interval is just such a consistent loop. Mm-hmm. So you can really compare previous efforts. Right, that's very true. That's something about trail running that it takes such a long time to get used to figuring out when you're going fast when you're running up a hill. Oh, I know. Yeah, trail running takes a while. And especially trail running is extremely hard when you start out just going yeah. up the hill. Yeah, and you look at your pace if you have a GPS watch and you just hate yourself. You're going like walking speed, but yeah. (laughs) So you've been reading David Goggins, and you've been letting his mind seep into yours. Oh yeah, for sure. So do you just go out there and try to break your ankles every time you run? I mean, I look out for injuries. Like, I don't think I, you know, David Goggins, I feel like doesn't really care about injuries Uh because he he just does get injured all the time. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of trains through it, which I definitely disagree with that. But right. pain, like any pain to the extent that it's not an injury, I think kind of chasing that is good. Yeah. You know, I like I like his mindset that you're out there with kind of the sole intent of just suffering. Mm-hmm. So when, when you're doing intervals and it's like, oh my god, this, this is absolutely horrific right now. I hate this and I want to stop. You got to turn that around and be like, actually, while I'm here, like, how painful can this get without it being detrimental? Right. Does so, like, that let's, seep let's into... just go for it. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's valuable with training. And, like, that's how you know you're gaining. I mean, no pain, no gain. That's one of the most cliche but true things, especially when it comes to physical activity. But does that seep into your – does that philosophy seep into your – day-to-day life like do you find yourself like holding on i don't know bottling things up or like emotionally feeling like you have to do a lot more to be successful yeah i mean i guess like the whole the whole cpa thing is kind of like that i mean i'm trying to get the the no pain no gain attitude more because Mm -hmm. when it comes to studying like i i hate i hate studying so much yeah and i i can't focus 
for more than like an hour at a time. But yeah. this exam demands more than that, so I need to kind of get into the mindset that this is just like a mental exercise. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've gotten pretty good at like accepting pain of physical endeavors, but not mm-hmm. so much the mental endeavors. Okay. Do you like beat yourself up though if you don't achieve what you thought you wanted to? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it feels bad, but <laughs> I guess it would it would feel bad for anybody. I mean, I don't know if it's that if it would be that much different. Yeah. But I don't know. I I don't think I have a big problem with dwelling on these things cuz again, cool. if you have the mindset of like what can you do? Like I can kind of go from here, but you can't change the past. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good living in the present uh, yeah, thing to focus on. I do think one of the one of the biggest pitfalls of that philosophy, from my perspective, is the like the rumination on not achieving what you have set out to achieve, and I think that accepting, like being accepting of yourself, is something that at least I've had to learn to do when it comes to working or i mean yeah studying training all of these things and it has led to a better outcome i think mixing those two attitudes is a good idea yeah yeah it does make sense but yeah, what's, yeah, what's an example what's what's one of your failures <sighs> failures i don't know is it's not usually focused around something really specific which might be part of it but i remember well a lot of a lot of these thoughts that i get come around uh just a general approach to life and if i'm like socializing too much or i feel like i'm not getting enough done in a certain area i can start to go into these like circles of really chewing myself out all the time and it gets to this Mm -hmm. negative point where i'm like ah you didn't do this you piece of shit like look at this you wouldn't be in this situation if this wouldn't have happened and it can just be this unhealthy rumination and i i don't know i think that's maybe maybe it's less of a byproduct of that philosophy than it is um just an innateness to negative self-talk I know that that was something that, I mean, it's something I'm still working on, but it was more prevalent when I was younger. And I really started to notice it when I started smoking weed, oddly enough, because it would get, Mm. that self-critical part of me would get really loud when I smoked weed. And I think that's just because I noticed it more. And so over time, I've been able to kind of accept, I guess one very specific example would be like taking rest days thinking like or or when when you run when you're tired and you're like you only like i only ran i couldn't even get sub eight today or something like that and just getting upset about that and having to learn it's okay to accept where you are at this moment in order like in fact it's in advantageous to accept where you are in the moment so that you can better prepare yourself for where you want to go yeah, yeah, I know what you mean for sure, especially with the rest day thing. Mm-hmm. Like those are those are always hard to cope with. Yeah, I've 
I've kind of stopped with the rest days, especially in quarantine. I, I haven't taken a rest day in probably like three weeks. Yeah. But do you take? I, I count I count active recovery as rest days. Yeah, yeah. I I do that. Was doing that for quite a while. I think I think it counts as long as your active recovery isn't like the equivalent of a long run on a bike. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I've been trying to like actually do just like a three mile run as easy as I can, and just call that good for the day. And I think that's effective. Yeah, no, that sounds like a really good rest day. What what is uh as easy as you can though in like pace? Um, I actually I try to make it so I can just breathe through my nose and not okay. have it be uncomfortable. Like nice. if I can run and exclusively nose breathe, then that's a it's an easy pace. Okay. Do you do hills on those days, or you try to keep it flat? No, I try to keep it flat. I mean, mostly I can't really get to hills from my apartment without going more than that distance. So it kind of forces me to keep it flat, which is probably good. Yeah. No, it's the same here. I can get to, I can get about three hundred feet of elevation if I go at least five miles. So, hmm. yeah, rest days. That's been a huge thing to learn. I think it's been helping me. So I've recovered from this it it band issue, and taking that like lazy time has been helping me be okay with not running every day. And so I've been actively trying to, like, run every other day. And I'm using a heart rate monitor now, so I'm a little more in tune with recovery time. And also doing other things like stretching and supportive exercises like biking. That's super important. Yeah, yeah when definitely. I was, when I was training for Le Grizz, it was a that's when I realized that the way that I was running isn't sustainable, at least for super long distances, because hmm. yeah, running, I don't know, running through injuries or trying to ramp up from 20 to 30 miles a week to like 40 to 60 miles a week, it's a it's a pretty steep increase, and I, don't, I think if you're not, like if the average person is trying to do that in just one burst, it's pretty challenging and can result oh, yeah. in injury. Yeah, I think just about every time I have tried to push past the 60-mile-per-week threshold, I'll get injured. Really? Yeah, I, I've never been able to do that consistently. Yeah. Yeah, no, and then there's runners out there that are doing, like, 100 miles a week. Regularly. I know, it's insane. Like, if you look at Jeff Mogavero's Strava, yeah. that guy does, like, 100-plus every week consistently. Yeah. He had back-to-back -back long runs the other week that were oh god i saw back-to-back -back long run number two and he did i think it was 43 miles at a 935 <laughs> average pace and he did like oh eight, eight or nine thousand feet of elevation in that that is outrageous it's insane that's so crazy and that was his second one Mm-hmm. yeah he Dang. did one the day before well that's that's inspiring like who who am I then to complain about an eight mile run? Yeah, I don't know. It also depends. I think in some ways long runs are easier because you're not trying to murder yourself, like go all out in the first few miles, and so it's more of a long game. You're like trying to strategize, being able to carry 
a, a reasonable pace for long enough. Yeah. I don't know. It's definitely a mental grift if you're trying to go faster. But in some ways, I think it's more relaxing. Maybe not relaxing. It's it's a little easier for me. Yeah, I guess it's a little more comfortable throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. Those medium-range runs where you're really pushing it the whole time can be really challenging, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So your plan, referring to what we were talking at the beginning of the podcast, is to make a lot of money quickly and then mm-hmm. invest that in ways that you can set yourself up independently financially so that you can live the outdoor recreation dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I can retire in my 40s, like, that's pretty ideal. Yeah, that's... I'm um, also... That's a- so one thing that would be sick is if we can get Medicare for all yeah. in the next 20 years here. And I bet it'll head that way because the, yeah, the health system in the U.S. has just been nosediving. It's getting so bad that drastic reform will be absolutely demanded here pretty soon. Yeah, And mm-hmm. so once we get that, you know, the big big limit on early retirement is you have to pay for your own insurance. And so if you can get that provided to you like by the government, that's $12,000 less that you need every year. Yeah. You could put that all in investments. Yep. We've talked a couple times about how the money you make at the start of your life is the most important because of compound interest. What other pro tips for saving money and being on the up and up do you have? Oh, so uh, a recent one that I think is pretty fun. If you have investments in college and you have long-term capital gains on those investments, so just meaning the value of those has gone up since you bought them. Well, the year before you go start your first job, so let's say you get your, you get into a PhD program and you're going to have gross income through the year of like $40,000. Well, before you start that, Mm -hmm. you should sell all of your investments and rebuy them immediately. So you're not actually selling them. It's just like a, it's a paper transaction. So you just hit sell and then just buy them back. And so what that does for tax purposes is that will recognize the gains that you've had on all those investments. So if you have $5,000 in stocks that have increased by $2,000, well, you're going to have $2,000 in gains that have to show up on your tax return the year that you did that buy and sell. But since you're a college student who doesn't have enough income, the long-term capital gains tax rate is 0%. So you're not going to pay any taxes on those gains, Mm. and you're going to get a free basis increase. So then when you start your real job and you have enough income to where you have to pay taxes on those capital gains, you basically just got a free $2,000 basis increase. What's a basis increase? So your basis is what you bought the stock for, and that's what you use to compute your taxable gain. Okay. So if you bought the stock for 5000 and you sold it for 7000 your basis is 5000 And so that means you have $2,000 of taxable gain. Okay. If you sell it and then rebuy, your basis is now seven thousand. So when you sell it in the future for nine thousand, instead of paying taxes on four thousand dollars, you only have to pay taxes on two thousand dollars. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good one. So that that'll save you like hundreds of dollars in taxes if you remember to do that. Yeah, and kind of implicitly in there is put some money into stocks or investments while you're still going to school. Oh, totally. Yeah. You can get those tax-free gains. It's a rare opportunity in your life. For sure. 
Yeah, there's a lot of benefits that students get. If you can manage your money well, it works out. Mm-hmm. But what do you think about paying student loans versus investing? A lot of people say that paying off all of well, your debts immediately is the best investment you can make. What do you think about that? It That's entirely dependent on your interest rate. Okay. So student loans have pretty bad rates, like, I don't know, probably seven to eight percentage yeah. ish these days. So if, I mean, if that's what we're talking, then you should pay those off mm-hmm. immediately. But for example, like a mortgage, you know, people who have mortgages are paying sub 3%. Okay. Instead of paying off the mortgage, you should invest that money. And that's what people do because you're going to get a way better return consistently than 3% on your invested money. Okay. Yeah. So this kind of brings me into thinking about money. Money is this weird thing that we make all these sort of semantic laws about. I'm sure you know a lot of the rabbit holes that you can go into with finances and how you can save money doing this versus this. And I don't know if it, at least my impression is that it doesn't map on to morality per se. It's more based around precedent and business law. Is that right? Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you mean by that? And that you see a lot of like unethical money grabbing schemes that are legal, but not moral. Well, uh, that might be implied, but I guess what I'm saying is it seems to me that a lot of the laws that are built around managing our finances are less based on what we would think would be ethical and more based on uh, practicality and semantics. Again, I don't actually know that much about finance and the law surrounding it, so I could be totally wrong. But what I'm getting at is that Money seems to be this entity that is bound up in so many of our decisions with life and it's used in this moral system as far as like economics has wide reaching effects on global health and access to things like healthcare and even social groups, things like that. And so one thing that's strange to me is this idea that we have a financial system, and I want your perspective on this, if we have a financial system that is more based on precedent and practicality as far as starting and managing businesses, corporations, things like that, than how it maps on to morality and how systems should operate optimally. I mean, I think it's like a pretty effective system from, like it does try to balance those things. You know, like the law for sure tries to balance what is right Mm -hmm. and what is like a good economic system, you know? So for example, uh, a really specific example is if you have like a buyer who goes into a pawn shop and maybe that pawn shop. So let's say you take like a gun to a gunsmith and that gunsmith was just supposed to repair it and give it back to you. But he like accidentally sells your gun to one of the buyers in his shop. Well, the law is going to let that buyer keep the gun. Like, they don't have to give it back. Oh, interesting. But that, like, I think that's probably the right thing to do because they were just, like, going into the shop, just buying, like, a regular buyer. So it wouldn't be right to take that back from them. And then in exchange, the, the gun, the gunsmith guy has to pay you back for your gun that he accidentally sold. Yeah, yeah. But it would kind of, I don't know, it would it would kind of make sense to say we need to take that gun back from the person who bought it, but that's not fair to them. So we're like, yeah, it's 
the moral thing here is let them keep it, even though maybe that doesn't seem to make the most sense on the surface. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess there's a lot of, it seems like kinks need to be worked out, obviously. We shouldn't be selling, like, subprime stocks as really good stocks, air quotes. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about alternative currencies like Bitcoin or, like, blockchain currencies that require basically d democratic checks and balances? Have you looked into that at all? I, I know a little bit about it. Not, not a ton, mm -hmm. but I think since it's still in such an early phase, there's still so much room to game that system mm -hmm. you know i mean the concept of like well if it's on the blockchain you can track every transaction mm -hmm. um so maybe it's a little bit easier to see the flow of money yeah but i don't know that that might be wrong because also obviously bitcoin is ideal for like dark web transactions because it can't be traced but i mean it's it's traceable if you just use it normally right you know if you just go on and just make a coinbase account and buy some bitcoin it's like very trackable. So if you had everybody doing that, then all of the tax evading billionaires would, I mean, they'd have to stop because you could look at the blockchain and be like, oh, look at all these Bitcoins flowing into Panama. Mm -hmm. That's pretty shady. And that just, they wouldn't do it anymore. But there's things like Bitcoin tumblers that anonymize your Bitcoins. And so it's way too easy to just like basically launder your Bitcoins, yeah, make them invisible. Okay. So I, I don't think that's going to add any morality to our financial system. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. I mean, that's a good thing to point out on the dark web. I mean, that's the basis of why a lot of those currencies exist anyway. So maybe it's financial education. Do you think that's something that we need to work on? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever going to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be more financially informed. Mm -hmm. like, that's so key, just the number of people who don't who like literally they just don't invest their money they maybe have enough money to where they should be investing like they've just got a pile of cash somewhere mm -hmm. or a bunch of money in a savings account but they're just intimidated by the idea of investing and that's that's horrible that just makes no sense nobody should feel that way right yeah i mean i'm sure you see a lot of people uh making huge financial mistakes on a regular basis just knowing more than the average person about finances i don't know i mean i'm not like i'm not always asking everybody i meet about their financial yeah. situations so yeah that's true I, I don't have a lot of opportunities to see that but yeah i mean i have a few friends who it's like i'll i'll give advice to them because they're definitely doing the wrong thing right now yeah okay what do you think about in like one of the things that i think about when i'm investing money on like in the stock market is the the morality of the businesses that i'm trying to fund i'll fund things that i think are uh at least not evil <laughs> i have a yeah i have a friend though that one of his main strategies is uh investing in alcohol and tobacco stocks he's like a very straight-laced person he's totally against smoking probably drinks three beers a year yet he invests in this because he says it's one of the things that doesn't go down during a depression or a recession. Yeah, I mean, there's if you're really against those things, there's other mm -hmm. things you can invest in that yeah. don't go down during a depression. Like, it, I don't know, if he has a moral issue with it, he could be investing in cereal companies, he could invest in Walmart, Costco. Those are things that hold up pretty well yeah, but, in, a, I mean, even in a depression. At, I'm kind of taking the extremist point of view, but even the ethics behind investing in like Walmart or McDonald's or those big, big chain stores. I mean, 
it seemed if I was doing things optimally, I would be investing in like organic groceries and local businesses, but there's not really an easy platform to do that that I know of. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of used to have that approach that like you should make ethical investments, but then I realized that it doesn't make any difference because all of all of the stocks that we would buy as just like low level college students, we're all buying them from other investors. So when we make an investment in Monsanto, for example, which is like one of the most evil companies out there, supposedly, we're, we're not giving money to Monsanto. Like Monsanto will not get more money to go do their evil deeds with if we buy a bunch of their stock. You're just giving it to another investor. So the stock is just trading hands on the same consumer level. So, I mean, granted, if that was wide, like, if enough people had that idea where everybody is like, I'm not going to buy Monsanto stock because it, they're evil, well, then it would drive the stock price mm -hmm. down a little bit, maybe. But still, the bulk of the price is made up by, like, the big institutions that okay. are trading massive amounts of this stock. So the consumer market is pretty negligible. Okay, interesting. So it's more based on the income that the company's already generating. Well, basically, when, when a company wants to sell stock, mm -hmm. they sell it all to a bank. They have like an underwriter. Okay. So if you're like, hey, I, I want to sell $100 million worth of stock this year. So you would go to Goldman Sachs and you would tell them that. And they would buy that whole batch of stock. Mm -hmm. So regardless of who wants to buy the stock, they are still going to get, like Monsanto is still going to get their $100 million, no matter what. And then Goldman Sachs is going to turn around and the bank is going to sell the stock to the public. And then they're going to hope that they can make a profit. They're going to hope that they can sell all that stock to the public for more than they gave Monsanto. Interesting. Okay. I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of stuck on is how do, we, how do we make the right decisions for ourselves financially in a lucrative way, but also try to be supporting things that we believe to be optimal or beneficial. Just simply going back to the example of investing locally. I mean, do you know of any ways to maybe not buy into the, the system? Okay, kind of. So you're saying, yeah, how do we, how do we kind of make financial decisions on a personal level that we think are kind of, yeah, good for us, but also still moral for kind of our level of society yeah i think i don't know i think the biggest thing you can do is just like be conscious of the things that you buy because that is the money that directly goes to the company mm -hmm. you know so much more than just trying to make good investments because obviously your investment money isn't going to the company but mm -hmm. when you buy their product that is money that just goes straight to them so yeah when you go grocery shopping like okay. what you buy in the grocery store is huge. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, just general consumer goods. What what retailers mm -hmm. are you supporting? It gets even more specific than just what products do you buy, but where you buy them from. Because you know the re the retailer takes a little chunk of that. So mm -hmm. let's say you've decided on a camp stove you want to buy. Well, REI is probably a more responsible choice to buy that camp stove from, because they are like a socially responsible co-op as opposed to backcountry.com, which is owned by a private hedge fund in New York. So like your money is going to Wall Street bankers when you make the purchase from Best Buy, whereas REI is like employee owned. And and Backcountry 
Backcountry had that big scandal where they were suing all of the small businesses that used the word backcountry. Oh, so wow. So we, we, should, we should all hate them for that. Good to know. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's a really good point, though, um, being a responsible consumer rather than worrying about – I mean, like you're saying, this money that you're investing in the stock market is really – it's exchanging through more or less – the hands of other investors and it's quite a bit more hypothetical and less directly uh, contributing to the success of a company. Yeah, I guess it's it's one thing to complain about that, but still be going to the grocery and buying eggs from a farm that feeds chickens chickens and keeps them in cages their whole lives. Yeah, no, that seems like a really solid approach to being a good consumer man yeah totally think about think about the scenario what if you bought a bunch of monsanto stock and you made a huge profit on the sale of that stock and then you just exclusively used that profit to buy cage-free eggs instead Mm -hmm. of the cheap torture eggs for the rest of your life yeah like now now you've got a net a net moral gain i would say yeah i i really think there's a niche for like I think there's like there's journalism. We learn about countries scan not countries company scandals through journalism and articles that come out about like back country for example. And there's some apps coming out that tell you about certain products. But I think that's really something that could be tapped into is some sort of third party to let people know like what the fuck is going on with this product. I mean, you don't know if these cage-free chickens are still eating. Like a lot of them cage-free, that means that they're stuck in these giant barns where they have like maybe one square foot <laughs> each. Cage-free doesn't necessarily mean that like they're free range or anything like that. And maybe they're just eating Monsanto uh, corn or soybeans or whatever. Getting some sort of media or like third-party investigator to get that information would be i think really useful we actually kind of have that now it's still pretty Mm -hmm. small scale and it would definitely be good for it to get bigger but you know about like the rainforest alliance certification oh yeah yeah so that's like a perfect example of that so if a company i mean it's optional though like rainforest alliance doesn't just go around investigating people Mm mm-hmm but it's it's beneficial, and as more people are becoming aware of these things, then right. they will want to buy products that have that certification on it. So then if you, you're basically obligated to get that certification at a point when it becomes popular enough, or like nobody's going to buy your stuff if you don't have it. Right. Yeah, that's a huge thing, like certified organic, certified yeah, organic, yeah, exactly. slave-free, things like that. But yeah, we don't really have that for like gear, you know? For gear? Yeah, like if I buy a climbing rope, yeah, was that was that made by slaves in Indonesia? I don't know. Yeah, yeah where's your clothes coming from? And like, where the, where's the shit being mined? I mean, I think that like you can yeah. have it a hundred percent manufactured um, in the U.S. or in ethical ways, all of these things. But like, what are the work conditions for these people who are going into a mine every day to pull out? whatever you're getting iron oh yeah copper yeah and if you buy if you buy like a pack of beer is the aluminum from those cans was that mined from a place that's like polluting some gorgeous trout stream maybe yeah yeah and you got a picture of a 
a trout stream on your beer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, how much time do people spend thinking about that when they own these companies? I'm sure a lot of them just go out and say, okay, where can I buy high quality aluminum for a decent price? Turns out it's coming from Nigeria and these people are dying at an incredible I know, yeah. rate. That's that's a huge thing with like YouTube and podcasts and certain media too, is you can kind of go on and get the scoop. It's more about reviews and qual- product quality right now, but I mean, yeah. even if reviewers can be a little more comprehensive in what they're looking at, that would be probably great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think we're heading that way. So I think we'll see some improvements there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think at least in my bubble, it seems to be that we're headed in a positive direction as far as consumerism goes. And people are seem to be getting more conscious about where their food's coming, like, is the food good for you, bathroom products, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's hopeful. I'm glad that you brought this up because it seems to be, I mean, you hear all these highbrow conversations about capitalism or anti-capitalism, how, how it's destroying the world, all these things. And maybe that's true. Maybe some of it's true. But these are the things that you and I can do to be responsible consumers and i think on a ground level this is really what we should be talking about rather than debating capitalism and shopping at backcountry you might as well be doing the things that you should be doing in your life and thinking about where you're buying things and being responsible and socially oh yeah totally like that's that's the biggest impact you could ever have you know especially in in a capitalist society where money is everything so yeah just like be responsible with where you put your money and that'll contribute to the well-being of the system yeah take care of the people around you things like that yeah every every dollar you spend is just as important as a vote yeah yeah that's that's a huge thing to know and a lot of people have the attitude like oh it doesn't matter it's just one one extra thing but especially when you're talking about products and I mean, companies are arguably some of the, maybe the most powerful entities in the country. You're, you are voting for sure. Yeah, totally. And man, if you say, if you applied that logic to voting, we're like, Oh, I'm not going to vote because my vote doesn't matter. People will just tear you apart. They're like, you're so stupid, mm-hmm. but people don't really have that approach to money yet. Yeah, no, that's maybe we should start like shunning people who, buy fucking great value (laughs) eggs yeah true i i think i have great value eggs in my fridge right now so yeah nothing i have said has any credibility because of that but yeah no i mean do i i can rationalize it by being a college student that's part of it too though you like you have to be able to afford these things i was talking about this with my roommate the other day is it's better to buy vegetables even if they're not organic, than not to eat vegetables. You definitely—it's a little bit of a Maslow's hierarchy thing. You need to—you need to take care of yourself first, where you can do these little yeah. baby steps. It seems like a good approach. Yeah, definitely. But man, sometimes it's hard. Like a lot of these local retailers that are still selling things for MSRP plus, and you yeah. can get the same stuff on Amazon for half the price. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of draw the line there because at that point you're like asking for a donation to your local business. Yeah. Oh man, that's a hard one for me. A lot of the time I will spend the 
the little bit of the extra money just to buy local. I'll, I'll spend a little bit extra, but sometimes it's a just egregious difference. Yeah, dude, and Amazon has been Amazon's really shutting some things down. They're, the way that they oh, can offer offer everything you need for so cheap, and it's there in two days. It's a little more convenient than going downtown. I know. I had a bike shop once tell me that the stuff that was like the bike part that I was looking for was being sold on Amazon for lower than their cost. Like really? Amazon was selling it for less than their wholesale distributor. But then it's like, well, then what the heck? Start getting your whole supply from Amazon if it's cheaper. Yeah. Like it'd be stupid not to, but it sucks. Yeah. So this part was 40 bucks on Amazon. The bike shop was selling it for 99 Oh, damn. And MSRP was like 70 They were selling it for above MSRP. And then they straight up told you to go to Amazon? Um, no, I, I told them I would go to Amazon. I think I told them, I'm like, that's like literally over MSRP. Mm-hmm. Can you can you at least do that? And the, the guy was like rude about it, so I, I didn't feel bad about going to Amazon on that one. Yeah. No, I've been into stores to try products out, and I was trying on a pair of boots and i have a pro deal and i told the guy like i'm willing to pay you more than the pro deal to buy the boots here because i'd rather buy it locally but the pro deal i had these boots were like 250 dollars, and at the store i think they were 370 and so my god yeah and he got really mad too he was like i hate it when these people come in here and try on boots just because they have a pro deal I mean, it makes sense. Like, people are using your oh. store as an outlet to try things on, but he also wasn't willing to bring the price down at all or offer any kind of discount. So, yes, yeah, that's just like bad. That's just bad business strategy right there. That's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at that point, you're just completely uncompetitive. So, you either need to be prepared to go out of business or you need to adapt. Yeah. Man, Amazon is really making things cutthroat, I think. Especially, yeah. I mean, it affects a lot of post postal sources, too. I think they dropped all of their contracts with FedEx and moved them to UPS. And so now UPS is getting all this Amazon huh. money. But now I think that Amazon is working on starting their own supply chain as far like delivery system. Well, they kind of already have that with like the Uber-esque delivery. Have you heard about that? No. Oh, so like you, you and I could just go be Amazon delivery drivers tomorrow. Really? Yeah, we we would just drive our cars to a distribution facility, download the Amazon app, and it's just like Uber. It'll just like give you points on a map to just go drop off the packages that they give you, and you'll get paid per shift or like the number of packages delivered. That. Oh wow! Yeah, there we go. Goodbye UPS. Goodbye FedEx. Goodbye USPS. Well, USPS, did you see the article about how they're going to run out of money by September? Um, I didn't read anything about it, but when I was on Twitter this morning, I saw that hashtag save, save USPS was trending. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're, like, not going to have the mail in a few months. Damn. What, what kind of third world country will we be if our mail service goes under? Like, that's so ridiculous. Yeah. Yep, we're spending more on healthcare than any other country. We manage to spend ungodly amounts on military, and we can't afford to deliver mail. <laughs> I know. That is the most backward system ever. What Shit's can you crazy. Do? 
yeah, what can you do? Just buy buy locally, buy good stuff, look into what you're doing, yeah. be conscious of your actions. We should start a national network of bike couriers. Oh, dude, yeah. What would we deliver? Like, everything that USTS would deliver, but the exception is that it's only done by bike. Every bike courier take real pride in their job, and they're also kind of the middleman that we're talking about. They're delivering your, your blue ribbon dog food to an owner, getting off your oh bike my with this 50-pound package, and they're like, hey, man. Really glad to bring your package today. This was awesome. Um, good exercise for me. But listen, dude, if you want your dog to stay cancer-free, you should really consider this list of products. And then you hand them your, like, animal-friendly <laughs> food brands. Is it, that I mean, would be sweet. That would that would change the world. Yeah. You get all these people out on bikes working out, delivering packages. Oh, my God. Think of the emissions reductions. Oh, Yeah. We can normalize biking in U.S. cities. Oh, the fatal flaw is that it would take you a month to send a letter across the country. Probably more than that. Yeah. Okay. So let me – this is my um, – this is what I would do if I was emperor of the U.S. I would outlaw roads. I wouldn't outlaw vehicles. I wouldn't outlaw motorcycles. Um, all the stuff you could have, but I would outlaw roads. Then I'd start a huge job program where we tear down all the roads and recycle those materials into making high-speed trains underground. And so any like city to civ- city to city, state to state travel would be on these high-speed trains. And then all above-ground travel would have to be um, n- like off-road. Like sure, if you owned <laughs> a piece of private property, you could make yourself a racetrack to drive your Ferrari around. But like if you're trying to drive. If you're trying to go to grandma's house, you might want to use like a motorbike, a four-wheeler, or a bike, or walk, or a horse. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the logic, but why why can't we have pavement? Dude, it takes up so much room. Wouldn't it be better to at least like let people bike on paved paths? Yeah. I have to think about that one. And and then if you if you only have dirt, you can only own a mountain bike. Like road <laughs> road bikes are off the table. Yeah, true. I'd have to get rid of my Cannondale. Um, no, maybe, I, I, I like I like the idea. Maybe there maybe there'll be like a width restriction. Like you can have paths oh, that are up to six feet. I mean, that's as far sick. or six to ten feet wide. No cars, at least on them. I don't know. It it's gonna take a lot of work to iron this one out. That's what I'll assign my cabinet to doing. When I get Can you there. imagine if we had just a national network of bike paths, like smooth, narrow bike paths, just that web throughout the whole country, and they all have like little campsites along the way for when you're making like cross-country trips? That'd be amazing. That would be so cool. Yeah, just instead of roads and like freeways, you just narrow these things down, like regrow all the wildlife around them, and then you're just able to do like these True. crazy cross-country bike trips and it's normal that would be sick mm-hmm. you're taking the bike the bike path to la instead of taking the high-speed train because you it's like you want to make that trip biking is pretty fast if you're fit and you can do it I mean, you could probably how many days would it take you to get to la like oh. probably five to seven i i don't know about that how far away is L.A.? I don't know. We can look that up. Um, all right. We've got 1,200 miles. So 
if you're really pushing it, doing 100 miles a day, which is feasible, I guess. Actually, that'd yeah. be pretty awful, but you could do it <laughs> 12 days. Yeah. Okay, so... I don't know, okay, so no. 24 days round trip. Mm-hmm. That would be long. That's kind of gnarly. You could just bring your bike on the train. Like, obviously, if that's the yeah. main mode of transportation on the on the crust, then you could... There would have to be a lot of bike racks and things on the train or, like, bike rooms. So you could get out in, like, the Columbia Gorge and then just bike the gorge or something down to L.A. three days instead of... Oh, days. yeah, that... That would be sick. That would be a much better country. Yeah, dude. Everybody would be fit. You could, like... I don't know. Yeah, it'll change the world. I like the bike courier idea, though. That's a good one. Yeah, that would be super fun. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe if I can retire at 45 and I've got a bunch of money to spare, I'll just have, like, little passion projects like that. Like, see if I can actually make a, a bike courier business relevant. Yeah. Start local. I mean, you could... Yeah. Wherever you live, Park City, Missoula, you you get this bike courier business going on to you you try to oust all the other like Uber, Amazon, things like that, and just deliver that would local be products. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Maybe that's what we need is just I don't know, well to do, middle aged, retired people investing in the things that they always wanted to see happen. Seriously, that'd be so fun. I don't know why more people don't do that. I don't know. It seems like people get to a certain age and then they buy a motorhome and yeah, true. Out. Well, I should probably take off here. I gotta, I gotta study some more before we do this this beerster egg hunt. That sounds good, dude. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah, no, that, that was, was fun. fun. Um, definitely down to do that again sometime. Maybe we'll both have better internet at that point. Yeah, that would be good. Good for the flow. Yeah, we should definitely do this again. Sweet. Well, I will. I'll talk to you soon, and we'll see how the the hunt goes. It'll be fun. Sounds fun. All right, Cole. Take care. All right. Bye, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. You can find Cole at Cole underscore Geshwind on Instagram. That's C O L E underscore G E S C H W I N D. He's got a lot of good footage up of some of the recreation we're talking about there. You can also find some of his work at Alpine Bandwagon on YouTube. I also want to thank my friend Blake for the beautiful podcast cover art. You can find more of Blake's art at Blake's underscore land on Instagram. And finally, I'd like to thank my brother Benjamin Cook for the awesome intro outro music we have on the podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can tip the tip jar, which you can find in the show notes at the bottom. You can spread the word to friends or anyone you think may be interested. You can also rate the podcast on iTunes and subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thank you, everybody, and we'll talk to you later.